Over the centuries, the book of Job in the Old Testament has been regarded by non-Christians as well as Christians as one of humanity's great classics, not only because it is characterized by literary excellence, but also because it is ancient and it has a straightforward approach to dealing with the question, why? Why must people suffer? Today we are taking a quick walk through the book of Job. It is about a man who suffered greatly, though he was pleasing to God and rigorously devoted to him. A few minutes ago I read chapter 1. In the person of Job, we see a remarkable man, utterly unique among the people of the earth. He is righteous and devout, and he is greatly blessed in the things of this life. In the aftermath of the sin of Adam, I'm sure Job had a sin nature, and I'm sure he needed salvation by grace through faith, as we all do. As the Bible says of Abraham, who was perhaps roughly a contemporary of Job, he believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Surely this text from Genesis fifteen six, which speaks of Abraham, applies equally to Job, as it does to all persons of the Old Testament and New who trust in the true God of the Bible. We believe God, and our faith is reckoned to us as righteousness. Nevertheless, Job is presented to us as a uniquely godly man who is fully pleasing to God and is under God's approval. This is important to the narrative because it eliminates any theory that Job suffered because God was displeased with him. In chapter 1, we're told of a conversation in heaven where God speaks to Satan about Job. God says that there is no one like Job in all the earth. Satan, whose name means adversary, says to God, Job is only thus in pretense. In reality, Satan says, Job has no heart for God. It is just that Job knows better than to bite the hand that feeds him. Job feigns devotion because doing so benefits himself, says Satan. But if calamity was to befall Job, then Job would curse God to God's face. So God gave Satan permission to take away all that Job had. Only his life and health were to be spared. Then in a sudden series of events, Job loses it all. His possessions, his servants, and his children. And how does Job respond? The text says, Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, 
and naked I shall return. In other words, I entered this life with nothing, and when I leave, I will bring nothing with me. Then Job says, The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. By this, he appears to mean that it is God's right to give good things to people, and it is his right to take good things away. Job concludes, Blessed be the name of the Lord. By this, he means God is worthy to be honored regardless of my circumstances. God is worthy to be honored regardless of my circumstances. The text of chapter 1 ends with these words. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. So Job passed the test, and if Job had charged God with wrongdoing, he would have failed the test. Well, then we come to chapter 2. In chapter 2, we're told of another scene in heaven. As with the first, Job has no knowledge that this is going on. You and I, as the audience to the book of Job, are told of these scenes in heaven. But Job knows nothing about them. By the way, this is a literary technique called Dramatic irony. When the audience is given information that characters within the story do not have, it is a technique called dramatic irony. We see this same technique extensively used in the story of Joseph in the latter chapters of Genesis when he was sold into Egypt as a slave and the events that flowed from that. In the Joseph story, the audience knows what Joseph experiences in Egypt, but Joseph's brothers and his father do not know. In fact, the father doesn't even know Joseph is alive. The audience knows what then transpires among Joseph's family members, but Joseph does not know. When the brothers come to Egypt to buy food in the midst of the famine, they do not know that this intimidating Egyptian official is their brother Joseph. But the audience knows, and there are many more examples of this as the story of Joseph unfolds. Well, here in Job chapter 2, we, the audience, are informed of a second scene in heaven that pertains to Job. God says to Satan, he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. Satan has been proven wrong in his accusation from chapter 1. Job did not curse God. He worshipped God. And God says that Satan incited God to do this Quote, without cause. This makes explicit that the suffering of Job was not a punishment for some wrongdoing on his part. Satan responds by insisting that Job is devoted to God only in pretense. Satan, in effect, says, 
a man would be willing to give up all that he has in exchange for his health, but if God would allow Job's good health to be taken from him, then Job will curse God. In response, God gives Satan's per- Satan permission to further afflict Job. Only his life is to be spared. So Job lost his good health, and he was afflicted with loathsome sores from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. Then Job's wife, whom Satan chose to spare, though it appears he had God's permission to end her life along with the children, Job's wife articulates the will of Satan, saying to Job in chapter 2, verse 9, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. That Satan would use her in this way is reminiscent the way Satan used Peter in Mark chapter 8, verse 32. There, Jesus told the disciples that he was going to the cross, and Peter began to rebuke Jesus, saying, Uh, For saying such a thing, Jesus responded by saying, Get behind me, Satan. Similarly, here Job rebukes his wife. He says, in effect, You're speaking to me as a stranger, for your words are foolish. Job continues, Shall we accept good from God, and shall we not accept calamity? It then says something similar to what it said at the close of chapter 1. It says, In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. And that phrase, with his lips, is loaded with meaning because the book of Job has a sub-theme that words are very important. Thus, Chapter 2 concludes by affirming the same teaching by which chapter 1 concluded. God is worthy of our trust and devotion regardless of our circumstances. In addition, Job said, Shall we accept good from God and shall we not accept calamity? Your translation might say evil, shall we accept good from God and shall we not accept evil? But such a rendering is misleading. The underlying Hebrew term is ra'ah. This word can be morally qualitative in certain contexts and can be translated evil. But in other contexts, it refers to an undesirable event or circumstance and can be translated calamity or adversity. Here, Job is not being morally qualitative, but rather is describing the undesirable circumstance that has befallen him. Job, God, has not done evil to Job. Rather, he has permitted calamity to Job. God sometimes permits evil, as he permitted Cain to kill Abel. But God does not do evil. God does not act contrary to his unchanging perfection of character. But it is 
but God is purposeful and sovereign, and the calamity that befell Job was indeed ultimately from God, though Satan, who is evil, was God's instrument. And of course, that is a hard one to understand, to wrap your head around. God is good, yet he uses Satan for God's own greater purposes. But God indeed does that. In Psalm 119, verse 68, it simply says, God is good and does good. So Job is theologically correct when he says this calamity is from God. When Job says, shall we accept good from God and not calamity, I think this can be paraphrased as, is God not right to deal with us as he sees fit? Job does not know why these terrible things have happened, but he focuses on what he does know. God is the creator, God is wise, God is good, God is not unrighteous, God is free to deal with us as he sees fit. Job, like any of us, took great pleasure in being prospered by God, and he felt great pain and sorrow when God allowed him to suffer loss. But in the midst of this, Job retained his reverential fear of God. Job understood that God is the maker, and if God allows calamity, this does not mean God is unrighteous, nor does it mean that God has any kind of fault, defect, or deficiency. Whatever the reason for Job's terrible loss, it is not that something is wrong with God. Back in 1978, for those of us who can remember back that far, Rabbi Harold Kushner wrote a best-selling book. It was called, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Some of Rabbi Kushner's error is seen even in the title of his book. For Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 7, verse 11, that people are evil, not good. But setting aside that error for a moment, Rabbi Kushner really presents nothing new in his book. He simply repackaged the same thinking that has been around for centuries. Basically, he says that since God is indeed allowing people to suffer, there must be some deficiency in God. If God is able to prevent human suffering and chooses not to, then God is not good. If God desires to prevent human suffering but cannot, then God is not all-powerful. But according to Job chapter 1 and chapter 2, if Job had spoken such words as these, God would have regarded it sin. Rabbi Kushner's message is literally sin and is factually incorrect. It is true that human history is marked by suffering, injustice, war, disease, and poverty. Nevertheless, there is no fault, there is no error, there is no deficiency of any kind in God. And in the case of Job, a uniquely righteous individual, Job himself says, in effect, 
God our maker is free to deal with me as he sees fit. According to Job chapters 1 and 2, the reason for Job's suffering was that his faith and devotion may be proven genuine. This is complementary to what Peter would write centuries later. In 1 Peter chapter 1, he is speaking of the suffering that believers such as you and I may experience. And this is what Peter writes. According to God's great mercy, he has called us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Now especially note this, Peter continues, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is Job chapter 1 and chapter 2 in a nutshell. The trials that true believers in the Lord Jesus experience are, at least in part, for the purpose of showing outwardly that our faith is genuine. And the outcome from these things is that we are made to participate because of that proven faith in the glories to follow. I have a friend of a friend back in Nevada, a family by the name of Evans. About 20 years ago, their son Caleb, who was about six or seven at the time, was diagnosed with leukemia. From that day to this day, every single day of this family's life has been different. Because of Caleb's leukemia, they have been consigned to a completely different set of lifetime experiences than what they had expected or wanted. I have no doubt that both his mother and his father have said to God numerous times in prayer, give me the cancer and let my son be well. But it was to be Caleb, and for the parents it has been more difficult than if it had been one of them. Day after day and year after year they carry on. They deal with what they must deal with. The financial implications, the need to become experts on the subject of leukemia and its effects and risks and medications and all the rest. Things about the human body and how it works that they could wish they did not need to become experts on. And in the midst of all of this, they persist in trusting God. They persist in honoring God no matter what. Today, Caleb is still alive. He's in his 20s. He has finished high school and is trying to get through college. He has bouts with his health 
that periodically land him back in the hospital for months at a time. But he's still hanging in there. And the entire family persists in the good confession as did Job. God is worthy and he is trustworthy no matter what. Well, Job chapter 2 closes with a group of Job's friends who each apparently live some distance away agreeing with each other to meet together in order to visit Job, to give him comfort in all that he has been through. But as we study chapters 3 through 37, we might find ourselves wondering if these comforters are being used by Satan as Job's wife was, for all of them look at Job's suffering and they incorrectly insist that Job is suffering as a punishment from God. In chapter 3, verses 12 and 13, it says, When they, these friends, saw Job from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground, seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw his suffering was very great. After these seven days, Job finally breaks the silence. In a speech that spans all of chapter 3, Job, in his misery, curses the day of his birth. With this, Job and his friends descend into a fruitless debate on the question of why God is allowing Job to suffer. This points to another striking literary feature of Job, namely, telling the audience the end at the beginning. When chapter 2 is over, we know. We, the audience, know the answer to the why. It is so Job's faith and devotion may be proven genuine. And so as we continue through the book of Job, we who know the answer, the audience, are looking on as those who don't know the answer enter into a series of arguments with each other as to why this is happening. We, the audience, know, and they don't. And we find ourselves perhaps wishing we could shout the answer into the text so they would hear it. But they don't know the answer, even though we do. So they descend into a fruitless contest of speeches. Over the course of 35 chapters, Job and his friends go back and forth, each one in turn giving a speech that is one or two chapters long, giving his wisdom on the question, why is God dealing thus with Job? The outcome from all of these speeches, however, is that these wise men of the East simply do not have the answer. Job's friends think they have the answer, but they are wrong. And Job knows he does not have the answer. But over the course of his debates with his friends 
and under great duress, Job does begin to intimate that since he himself is righteous, it must be that there is something wrong or deficient with God. Job says he wishes he could appear before God in order to make his case to God. This implies that Job thinks God is unaware of the situation or that God is disinterested and will only do the right thing if someone marshals logical arguments so that God can see that this is the right thing for him to do. But God is not thus. He is not unaware. He is not indifferent. He is not passive, only taking action when someone explains the proper reasoning to him. As Job and his friends debate back and forth, it becomes clear that each person speaking in turn believes that his own words are wiser and better than the words of the others. Thus, as they debate on the question of why Job is suffering, they are also competing with each other, each person asserting himself as above the others because each one believes his own words are the best and the wisest. Thus, a theme emerges in the book of Job where people think that their rank in relation to each other is based on who has the best words. Because of this, there's an aspect over the course of these 35 chapters that can either be seen as humorous, if you look at it through that lens, or it can be seen as unseemly. It is reminiscent in terms of the unseemliness of Mark chapter 9, where it says, Jesus came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked the disciples, What was it you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves as to who would be the greatest. Well, that's what's going on in these speeches between Job and his friends. Partly, They are trying to answer the question, why is God allowing Job to suffer? But partly they are struggling with each other for status as being wiser than the others. And each one thinks he's right and has the best words, while Job likewise seems to think that his words are better than those of his friends. Job knows he does not have the answer to why he he is suffering. Eventually, it becomes clear that Job and his friends are going in circles. They are hopelessly entangled and unable to arrive at the correct answer as to why Job is suffering. If you read through these 35 chapters where they're debating with each other, you may observe that not a single speech in these chapters features a description of the two scenes in heaven. The men are not privy to this information, and they are entirely unable to deduce it. People, independently from God, 
do not possess and cannot arrive at the answer to the question, why do people suffer? The correct answer does not exist in the domain of independent human wisdom. If people are to know the answer, they must wait for God to provide it. This is similar to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom, that is, we apostles, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom from God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Paul concludes by saying, These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. The the relevant truths that pertain to humanity's greatest questions can never be arrived at by man independently from God. We can only be enlightened when the answer is given by God. All the philosophers that the world has ever known, with their genius, their eloquent words, and their long-winded sentences and volumes of book, books, in combi- all of them in combination, have never independently replicated any portion of God's written word, the Bible. The truths that man has needed, man could not arrive at on his own. The answers had to be given to us by God. And now that we have them, we have only to believe and to live by them. So where does this leave Job? Unlike you and I, Job and his friends did not have the Bible. In centuries to come, God's prophets would gradually, bit by bit, give God's written word, the Bible, to humanity. But Job and his friends had no Bible. They are hopelessly confused and entangled, and they have become partially distracted from the central question about suffering because of their rivalry toward each other. But in chapter 38, God condescends to become a participant in this battle of speeches. But unlike the others, God speaks from the power and intimidating force of a whirlwind. Just to make sure that Job and his friends understand who is God and who is not. Surely, as the very first words rolled from the lips of God, Job and his friends knew they were in way over their heads. God proceeds with a speech that is four chapters long and is addressed specifically to Job. It is the longest speech in the book of Job. God begins by saying, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? 
And from there, it only gets worse if you are Job. God then proceeds to deliver his own speech into this contest of speeches. I suspect that if God had simply stopped after his first sentence, Job would have raised the white flag and would have expressed his regrets with fear and trembling. But God engages in his own labor of words to make unambiguous his point. And God's point is actually quite straightforward. You, Job, should be able to look at the world around you, the world that I, God, designed, created, and continue to sustain, and by your observations from the world around you, you should be able to draw the conclusion that I am of immeasurable wisdom and power, and you are not. You are not in a position to claim that there is any fault, error, or defect in me. My purposes are a mystery to you, Job, but those purposes exist, and you should know that whatever they are, they are wrought in genius, just as the created world around you is wrought in genius and in power. In response to this debate regarding God's reason for the suffering of Job, God here gives no answer. Again, you and I, as the audience to the book of Job, we know the answer. The reason for his suffering is to prove his faith and devotion genuine. But uh, Job, at this point in the storyline, does not know. For Job, seeking the answer to the question why, God's words in these four chapters may seem a disappointment. But in reality, God's message in these four chapters is foundational. Humans are prone to look at suffering and make the conclusion, like Rabbi Kushner, that there is something wrong with God. In these four chapters, God eliminates that from the realm of possibility. God is in effect telling them, you don't know, except that you don't know, and for the moment, I'm not going to tell you. What this teaching from God accomplishes is that it humbles humanity and it puts us in our place. Further, it establishes the necessity of our dependence on God. We will only know the answers if and when God discloses them. In one of his earlier speeches in Job chapter 13, verse 15, Job correctly said, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. God is now saying, in effect, that is exactly what Job and his friends must do. Without knowing the answer, they must trust God. Well, after God's four-chapter speech to Job, God then turned his attention to Job's friends. In chapter 42, verse 7, God says to the friends, My anger burns against you, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Well, God has just finished putting Job in his place 
saying, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And now God is saying that Job has spoken of him what is right. So what is that about? God is establishing the rank of the persons involved in the debate. They were struggling with each other on the question of whose words are best and who ranks highest. Now, just as the spoken word of God imposed order in Genesis chapter 1, here again the spoken word of God imposes order by, tell, by making clear the, the rank of the persons involved in this contest of speeches. First, God ranks at the top, infinitely beyond the others. He established this by his four-chapter speech addressed to Job. Now, God is establishing that Job ranks next, higher than his friends. This is the significance of God saying to Job's friends, You have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. God is saying that Job's words are better than theirs, which to them means that Job ranks higher than them. Further, God calls Job, quote, my servant, which indicates that God has a loyalty to Job. God then tells the friends of Job to bring animals for sacrifice, saying that God, Job, will offer sacrifices and will pray for his friends, and that God will then accept Job's prayer on their behalf. The outcome from this is that the friends are forgiven, and they have it firmly understood that Job ranks higher. And by Job offering this sacrifice and by praying for them, Job is, in effect, forgiving them for any wrong they have spoken against him. Then we are told God blessed the latter days of Job's life more than the former. Job had seven more sons, and he also had three daughters who were the most beautiful in the land. And unlike the sons, we are told the daughters' names. And Job lived 140 additional years and saw generations of children and children's children after him. Now, kind of as an epilogue, somewhere after these events, we infer that God gave the answer to Job because Job or one of his friends was likely the author of the book of Job, which means at some point God told them about the scenes in heaven and what the reason was for Job's suffering. But within the storyline... God never does tell Job about those scenes in heaven from which we learned the answer to the why. Well, may you and I, like Job, persevere so that our faith and devotion, which are more precious than gold, may be proven genuine until the great day when we see Jesus face to face.